Welcome to the Very Casual Politics Podcast. I am your host, Matt, and I'm joined by Aaron. Hello. The idea of this podcast is to talk about, it's just two friends talking about the political issues of the day that affect the world. Hopefully we'll be getting out these podcasts relatively frequently, and you can be joining us in the future. For now, I think we'll just start talking about some of the issues of, well, this very day. Um, yes, so this week, many of you might have noticed that we're coming to the conclusion of the Siege of Aleppo. So we're going to talk about what's happened in Aleppo and what may happen afterwards as well. So, uh, Matt, how do you feel about the whole siege in Aleppo? I think that's a, well, that's, it is a big question, Aaron, but I think I'd also like to preface to, to our listeners that I think it's important to know we're not experts in any way. I'm just a history student. Um, <laughs> yes, whereas I've just graduated from university and just finished my politics degree. So we are just people that have been watching the news and have opinions about what's been occurring. So maybe you'll find it interesting to listen to our, our vague ramblings and reckonings. Or maybe not. Um, as far as Aleppo is concerned, I think it's it's interesting to see the coverage. I was reading a Patrick Coburn article. He's an author in The Independent. And what he talked about is really interesting in that the way the Western media is covering the siege of Aleppo compared to the siege of Mosul. And he kind of made the point that it's you've got these uh, sovereign UN states is trying to regain its uh, city, which has fallen to, to rebels. And they're supported by foreign actors who are helping with the bombardment of these places. And yet in Mosul, it seems liberation. Whereas in Aleppo, it's very much a brutal crushing of people. And I think it's understandable that there is that divergence. There's definitely more brutality by the Syrian army than there is by the Iraqi army. But I think that's an interesting point to take, that maybe everything we're seeing in Aleppo isn't necessarily, you know, the truth being conveyed. I don't know. What do you think about that, Aaron? Well, you, you raise a few very good points there. I, think I, I, I can agree with you that with Mosul, it hasn't been covered as much. You wouldn't mm-hmm. see the scale of bombing that's being shown in Mosul. I'm sure there's lots of buildings that have been knocked down through our own missiles or through American missiles. But with Aleppo, I think the reason why it's been covered by the news is because Western media and also both our, both the US and the British government has actively supported the rebels. And if Aleppo does fall, which is only a matter of time, yeah. um, that, that represents the near end of the rebellion and the ramifications of this could be quite significant for both the West and for us, really, if Assad yeah. succeeds. As for what's being done in the difference between Aleppo and Mosul, I think with Aleppo, the problem is is that the Russian bombardment uh, via aeroplanes has significantly hit the civilian a lot more than Mosul. That's my interpretation of the coverage. Yeah, no, I, I'd accept that. But with you get you get all these various videos of mm-hmm. of children being hit by um, children in hospitals being hit or children in rubble, and it just hits you a lot more than, say, Mosul. But I don't know how many videos have been recorded from Mosul that have been showing the same sort of destruction. Yeah, I think it's, it is interesting to note that in both places, the, the Western media, which is the media that generally most of us are consuming, isn't in these cities, and so isn't showing what's really happening on the ground. And so there are people like the Al-Nusra Front, the Al-Nusra Front, who are an Al-Qaeda affiliate, who are in Aleppo and essentially controlling the message coming out of that. And so it'd be interesting if, in the similar way, why the Western media wouldn't cover the same sort of information coming from ISIS or Daesh inside Mosul. I think that's interesting. Because, for example, I'd just say today, or I guess late last night, the kind of 
Syrian government, I think they're trying, the way they're taking advantage of their siege of Aleppo is they're trying to um, end the sieges of some of their troops in um, Idlib province, which is where the rebels now the main area of control for them. And yet some of the buses that the Syrian army had sent to pick up civilians and soldiers had been set on fire by rebel forces. And it was interesting to see the kind of media deal with this change in narrative. Um, I would like to say that I'm, I'm not saying that you know, the, the violence done by the Syrian army and the Russian air forces is pretty horrific. Um, and I wouldn't condone any of that. I would think they're on any kind of right side as if, whereas I, do, I would agree more with what the Iraqi army is doing and what they're trying, trying to achieve. Yeah, I, I think, I get where you're, talk, you're coming from. There is a, definitely a change in narrative between the two stories. But with, I think what we're seeing is that the Syri- Syrian government is taking control of Aleppo and I think Assad is a lot more brutal in his mentality of taking over these said districts. Mm-hmm. You're getting reports about rapes occurring and mass yeah. suicides occurring within rebel districts. And this is very reminiscent of other sieges in the past where um, where the opposing side has gained control of the city. I could think at the top of my head, uh, the, the, the siege of Berlin in uh, 1945, yeah. where the mass suicides occurred in districts that fell to the Soviets initially. And um, uh, and then rapes came in, what well, stories of rapes coming in from the Soviet troops. And I think the same might be starting to occur in uh, in Aleppo, sadly. But I do I do find it interesting that Mosul, you don't hear the same sort of stories of, I don't know, Iraqi troops coming into Mosul and raping said, uh, said people. I don't know whether that's due to them being seen as liberators in, in Mosul. I don't know what the, the situation is for most civilians in Mosul, whether they see... Whether they've been indoctrinated by ISIS or Daesh to believe that they are the opponents of their beliefs, or whether they are liberators freeing them away from this strict authoritarian Islamic rule that they've been living under. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. I think, from what I understand of Mosul, the vast majority of civilians there do see the Iraqi army as liberators. Um, then the question you have to ask is how many of the people in Aleppo see the Syrian army as liberators as well? Um, obviously there's a lot of brutality going on and so many won't but many are fleeing the area and that is because of Syrian artillery Iranian artillery and Russian air force um, attacks on East Aleppo but they are fleeing towards the Syrian army so they do see some safety there yeah Um, I would like to think about it because if it, before the actual rebellion there was about i did a bit, a bit of fact checking before oh, aaron has all the facts <laughs> this, is, this is where you're getting the real expert information in right now see i told you it wouldn't be experts but actually aaron is here with some excellent facts well yeah so aleppo was the biggest city in uh, syria and it had a population of 2.3 million before the war at the moment these are all it's estimates the size of berlin sort of isn't it a city like that isn't it 2.3 million fair, quite a few million I'm just randomly saying city <laughs> names. I'm pretty sure Berlin's got a few million people. I'm probably entirely wrong. I, I don't know. You might be right. If yeah. Berlin did feel like quite a, a medium small... kind of to large city. You know, not London, but no, because London's about seven million or eight million. Yeah, so smaller than that. So okay, let's, so... Say, let's say two Birmingham's. <laughs> yes, two Birmingham's <laughs> it is, but not as many canals. That's important to know. No, so yeah, so it's two two point three million before the war. And what you've got to know about Aleppo is that it's split in two at the, well, at the moment, or during the whole rebellion, where the western half belongs to the government throughout the entire war, and the eastern half was uh, controlled by the rebels throughout the entire war. That's where it initially started. And there were some Kurdish forces as well. Yes. In, the, 
there's a Kurdish district, I think, in the northwest, okay. which I had no idea how they got there in the first place. Um, yeah, that is an interesting one. It must have been when the Kurds were working more with the rebels, as far as my understanding goes. But yeah, maybe maybe it's a Kurd- maybe it actually might be an ethnically Kurdish area of yeah, the city. Yeah, that makes sense. You... And it, yeah, it might just be local militia in that sense. Yes. So, in the government's side, the estimate is that there's 1.5 million still living in Western Aleppo. Okay. So they must have, that's quite a significant amount still. Whereas compared to in the eastern half where the rebels existed, uh, there was 250,000 left. And this was before the major advances that came in. Um, in the past few weeks. Yes. Yeah. So I feel like there's a lot of people in the eastern Aleppo that has, have left. Um, I don't know whether that's due to the bombardment and they just want to get to somewhere safer or whether they actually believed in the rebellion itself. And that's, that's, that's what we've got to figure out is... The reason why the rebels are losing is because they never actually gained the support of the people they controlled, mm. or whether the the bombardment had its toll and morale was so low that people just left. Yeah, I think the issue of morale is important because this war has been going on for almost six years now. Um, is it five years? It was twenty eleven, so um, yes, yeah, five five years. But it's, we're getting to twenty seventeen now. <laughs> okay. This war has been going on for five or six years now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think it's interesting that idea of morale that affecting things because yes you've got the people we've been kind of stuck under certain regimes for a long time and I think there's that thing morale affects the rebels in the sense of they're being bombarded all the time and I've definitely seen reports saying that it's the same kind of reports you get from ISIS where they're saying the, the harsh regime we're living under isn't the regime we want in these kind of areas especially controlled by um, the Al-Nusra front but in the same way you've got areas controlled by the Syrian government, which might actually be similar in many ways to as they were before the war, especially on the west coast near um, Latakia, it seems more peaceful, yet they've got bodies coming home every day. Yeah. And so I think that's where the issue comes, is that with that morale, it's how long can a war keep going? This always happens with wars, that actually it's how it's affecting the civilian population, the home front, um, is more important in many ways than the facts on the ground. And so it really does look quite certain that Aleppo is falling yeah. within, I'd say, before 2017. I, I um, definitely agree with you on yeah. that. Um, I think they're demoralised, yeah. the rebels in Aleppo. I think the best case scenario is them, well, the rebels that are fighting there to get some sort of deal yeah. um, with the government to be sent to a nearby province, that yeah. province like Idlib, and yeah. uh, continue fighting if they believe that's what they want to do. Yeah, I think Idlib is the last enclave of the non-Turkish backed rebels and okay. non-Kurdish forces um, and so I mean I've I've seen I can't remember which where I read this but that uh, someone had got a quote from a Russian general who basically said the idea is we're going to get them all into Idlib and then bomb them to hell oh dear which sounds like you know I mean the Syrian civil war has always been in the background of foreign policy for the last since the Arab Spring really yeah um and every now and then it pops up as all kind of, oh, are we going to intervene over the chemical weapons? Or are we going to, what are we going to do about ISIS? So there's all these points where kind of outrage happens and then people say something must be done. In the end, nothing has been done so far. But I think it's interesting that I don't think Aleppo is going to be the last point where we say something must be done. I think Idlib will become another situation where there's a humanitarian crisis. And then, in my view, the obvious actor who might move in to take action... Um, beyond what Russia's doing in terms of bombing those people, is Turkey, who 
already have their own enclave of rebel forces um, just north of the city of Alban. And uh, that area, Idlib, is on the Turkish border, so I'd be interested to see what they end up doing there. Alright, so Idlib is, because I'm, I'm not very good with the maps of the area, mm. Idlib is then in the northern border yeah, between it's, the it's Kurds. Just, it's west of Aleppo. Yeah. And east of that kind of Latakia region where the Russians have their air force. Okay. So it's right on the Turkish border. Um, and it's quite a large section, which still remains. Um, I think if anyone wants the geography of the Syrians of War, the only place I actually find has the best maps is if you go on like the Wikipedia Commons page. They seem to have people who just constantly update the uh, situation in <laughs> Civil War. It's usually a day behind most things I found in terms of actually movements on in terms of conflict. But compared to BBC rap, maps until very recently, or maps you might find on The Guardian or something, or on The Telegraph, it really, they're just not as good in terms of explaining what the hell is going on. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very confusing uh, yeah. war. I think I, I read somewhere that there was 13 factions that were fighting in Aleppo. Yeah. Uh, that that includes Russia, of course, but it also included the various different yeah. fragmentations of the rebel groupings. I think if the rebellion does fail, and I think it's heading down that route, it's because they never united as a force. They were just they were they were never coordinated in where they were heading. The Free Syria Army was a bit of an umbrella, but yeah. where, where was that umbrella heading? You know, when you had Al Nusra that wanted to um, to follow a more radical Islamic view on on mm. things, and you had more moderates that wanted another interpretation of, of probably democracy in being yeah. in the area, and they just couldn't agree on anything. Yeah, and no, I think that idea of not being unified is quite interesting as well, because I was reading some stuff by Robert Fisk, who's a long-running Middle Eastern journalist. I mean, I've got his book, Aaron, it's yeah. great. Yeah, he's your, your favourite author. You're always sending me uh, yeah. <laughs> <I> always... <laughs> messages on Facebook about his newest... <laughs> yeah, no, I would recommend Robert Fisk as far as uh, Middle Eastern coverage goes. And he's been embedded with the Syrian army on and off for most of the conflict because it's impossible to be embedded with the rebels because you'd probably get killed. Um, and he finds that the Syrian army is incredibly divided as an organisation. Like, for example, when they lost Palmyra recently, he said that was more of a case of the local militia there just weren't interested in actually having a fight over it. And so obviously when the government took Palmyra uh, last year, they sent in their kind of crack troops. But it's the local militias that are holding these areas who are much less kind of part of any kind of army that we recognise in a more Western sense, and much more just local militias who don't really want to die fighting. All right. So are they, these local militias, are they just conscripted men that just happen to be in an area and they're putting like a little powers brigade similar to World War One? or...? I think it's a bit like that, yeah, in many ways. Um, or, or sort of how Germany dealt with its elder and younger people in the last days of the Third Reich. Oh, the Volks, Volkssturm, the People's Army. Yes. <laughs> where you had 16-year-olds and, and mm. what was it, 50-year-old men that were fighting together. In... Yeah, against the, the crack troops of the Red Army. That was yes. a, a terrible idea. No, because it seems these days that there are some er some parts of the Syrian army that are still very strong, still the remainder of that kind of army that was designed to fight Israel um, and is therefore a very are very good troops because um, you know training to fight Israel means training to fight one of the best armies in the world mm. um, but a lot of the army is backed up by Iranian troops troops from Hezbollah who also have the exact same thing they train to fight Israel and so that's very good forces <laughs> yeah. it's a kind of common theme I find um, and so these Hezbollah and Iranian troops with 
even if it's not Iranian troops, it's Iranian advisors, Russian advisors on the ground. It's a, it's a very actually international force who are the ones taking Aleppo. Okay. And that's, I think, also why we might be finding these massacres are occurring because it's they're kind of they're not just fighting a civil war; they're fighting, in many ways, a kind of international war. Especially the Hezbollah and Iranian troops see it as some kind of Shia war of defense almost against. They they view the rebel forces entirely being under the thumb of Saudi Arabia, and yeah. so for them, that's probably why this brutality is going on. Um, to what extent that it's true that there is any kind of Saudi influence i'm not too sure i know there's qataris and uae give weapons but i don't know what else they really do in the area well there's just so many people with loads of that got their fingers in the pie of of zero really with all the various different groups uh one thing i did notice and i think it dawned on both of us actually when we're having a facebook conversation um a few weeks ago was how both isis and the rebels could be slightly interlinked though they might not have any communication with each other but I think both the, both sides have realised that this international force, there's only one area they can focus focus on at one time. Yeah. So I think it came, it came across to us was um, when Palmyra fell to the government, having taken it off ISIS, that was a time when, at the same time in Aleppo, there looked like a real good chance of the siege ending there yeah. and um, the, the rebels actually breaking through and ending the siege for themselves and perhaps besieging Western Aleppo yeah. in return. And then after Palmyra fell, clearly this international force got moved over to Aleppo yeah. and began an offensive and have now basically surrounded the rebels to a small little little enclave. Where, and clearly ISIS now realised that Palmyra was there for the taking, yeah. then went on the offensive and tried, tried taking Palmyra again. And it was one of the weaker, weaker offensives that mm. they ever ran. And it fell after, I think, one day or maybe two days. Mm. But I think they both realised that that stage that they might have to do some sort of coordinated attack at some stage to to split up the this international force yeah and um i think they're running out of time for that yeah i definitely think even if they're not working together it's obvious to either side where these kind of crack divisions of the i guess assad side of the um, civil war is that on assad's side of the civil war he's got these crack divisions that he moves around the country yeah and it it seems to work in a similar way, really, for the um, uh, rebels, rebel forces, whether it's Daesh or whether it's um, the Al Nusra Front or more moderate forces, that they can only really put their kind of attacking troops into one area at one time, and the rest of the time it's very much holding forces. And so it's interesting to see how that kind of is going to change. As maybe if the Syrian government will focus on Idlib or whether they'll focus on ISIS, or there's still the we haven't really mentioned the Kurds properly. Yeah, and or Turkey, who are a major player now. I feel like that would go on to another episode if we if we went on yeah, to do Kurds. It's a very <laughs> it's just so many different angles a, you can take a look at this. Yeah, maybe we should move on from discussing Aleppo. But for now, it seems from where I mean we're speaking uh, in uh, mid December. Um, not too sure when this episode is going out, so things might have changed radically since then. Yeah, maybe now, a rebel counter-offensive mm, somehow retakes. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there was a counter-offensive earlier in the year which did fail rather spectacularly. And that was interesting with the led by the um, Al-Nusra Front. So that does create some issues, I guess, for that narrative we were speaking about earlier. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, maybe we should move on from Aleppo for now and discuss something else. Yes. All right. Um, so the next story is um, the supposed hacking of the US election. Yeah, I guess, I mean, in many ways, I guess Russian hacking of the US election could 
sort of tie into Aleppo because we mentioned kind of Russian involvement in Syria. So now we've got Russian involvement in the USA. Yes. Which is a interesting step. I don't know. What, what, what do you know about this, Aaron? I'm actually interested. So I have quite not that much knowledge of the entire topic because yeah. cyber, cyber wars is not really my field of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a very new field, really. Um, but from what I gather from reading a few articles uh, online, the FSB, which is the old KGB, yeah, um, okay. am I right in saying that? Yeah, I think, yeah. FS, I think it's FSB. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, a Russian and some r- other Russian military intelligence agency both hacked into Hillary Clinton's emails, and also the RNC, which is the Republican Party database. Um, interestingly, was it just Hillary Clinton, or was it the DNC as well? I think it also might have been the DNC okay. as well. So basically, they, they hacked into both. Yes. Okay. Interesting. But what was interesting about this whole scenario was that. Uh, they released 60,000 emails um, against the Democrats, yeah. um, which clearly hurt the Hillary Clinton campaign due to... Well, yeah. they must have given it to WikiLeaks, and then WikiLeaks leaked it onto yeah. the press. But they, they had access to the RNC, and they chose not to uh, release it, mm. which shows maybe some sort of sign on who they were supporting during the election. Yeah, I think it's interesting, because this is all coming out... I mean, it was known at the time, and said relatively openly by those suffering the hack, that the Democrats thought the Russians did it, and I believe it really soon after the FBI also mentioned that they thought the Russians did it. But it's only recently that President Obama himself, who's you know commander in chief of all these things, and I, I think America is quite strong on their cyber warfare these days, only spoken about it after the election. Um, I mean, he says that he feared that he would influence the election too much, or sound like he's some kind of conspiracy by saying this, but I think it is. It, is, it does show, I think, a failure on his part to do anything. I don't know if he's responded. I mean, he gave a press conference, must have been last week, where he said, you know, we're going to respond to this, whether you hear about it or not. But it's hard to say what he's going to do, you know. I mean, for, we don't know, for example, whether the CIA were behind the Panama Papers. Like, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. If we, ne- we never learned, actually. That was never known who did that. <laughs> if it was either a, a disgruntled lawyer. <laughs> or it could have been the CIA, I wouldn't be surprised. And so I don't know if maybe that kind of thing could happen in the next few weeks before Obama leaves, that some embarrassing information is let out of, about Putin, or whether there'll be more an actual kind of US-led cyber attack on Russia. I don't know. If, I don't think I could see Obama doing that of anyone. No, I think Obama's very weak when it comes to foreign policy interventions, and I, I doubt this is going to really lead anywhere, but I think one of the places, well, I've read somewhere, one article where it suggested that um, perhaps Obama can hack into the personal uh, accounts, banking accounts of um, Vladimir Putin, because he, in Russia, is portrayed as a guy that lives an austere lifestyle, and uh, as as a man with the people, but I think a lot of people are very sceptical about whether he actually leads this supposed lifestyle, and I think one of his closest officials uh, recently was outed in the Panama yeah. Papers as having £2 billion in, a, in their bank account, you know, as you do. And yeah. I think if they somehow got their hands on that, that could really cause a lot of harm to Putin and his personal standing with the Russian people. Yeah, I think that's important because obviously the Russian media has quite strong control in these stories. Mm. But if something's out on the internet, they can't stop that. Yeah. So in a similar way to the Panama Papers shedding a bit of a light on Putin's inner circle, if his lifestyle could be shown as well, because I mean, I don't know what the CIA can actually do. This is all getting into a bit of you know speculation about what spy agencies have the capabilities of. But if they can show his kind of lifestyle, I mean, I know that he's got he has 
think a number of homes in the south of France in the French Riviera in some pretty upmarket places near Monaco, I believe. Oh, really? Which the kind of places which, like, you know... Celebrities. Celebrities and aristocrats and Bill Gates have their homes. You know, it's it's that kind of yeah. area. It's, area. it's not like he's, you know, just spending his uh, pension money from the KGB or anything. <laughs> like it's, it's, we're talking tens of millions of dollars at, at least. So I think if, yeah, if they could show something like that, that would really um, shine a light maybe for the Russian public and maybe bring down some of those incredibly high polling ratings. Yes. Um, Suspiciously high polling ratings, I would say. I would say, yes. Like, the polls aren't to be trusted entirely in Russian re- elections, but even when I believe some independent stuff is done, polling data on his Putin's popularity, and it's still very high, Yeah. even if you take into account how much you know fear and intimidation affects things. And I think in the elections, international observers, they note that large amounts are rigged, Yes. especially in like certain cities, you know, they'll find that you know, it says that seventy percent voted for Unity Party. United Ru- that's it. Yeah. So it says it says in some cities that perhaps you know seventy percent voted for the United Russia Party, but in in reality it turns out about twenty percent voted. But it's I'd say it's definitely it's difficult. I'm, I think I'm about to argue that Putin doesn't rig elections, but what I'm saying is <laughs> <laughs> not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's not as controlled as you know, uh, an Iranian or a Chinese election is more my point, is that if he's getting 40% of the vote in an election, maybe that means that only 30% voted for him. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this leads me on to thinking, Russia's had a very good year in terms of elections, generally. Um, if you think about... Yeah. I mean, if you, if you, if you look at uh, Moldova, mm-hmm. uh, that was a country which was heading towards assigning an EU as an EU deal um, for trade, yeah. similar to the one that Ukraine did before the ousting. It's an association agreement. And there was an election there, and the pro-Russian candidate won. And then you go into actual EU countries. Bulgaria had an election a month ago, and the pro-Russian candidate won again, uh, beating the actual incumbent in this case. Okay. And this, the, the scenario surrounding this is quite interesting, because if he's rigging the US election, which is supposed to be the, the most yeah. freest and fairest election in all, in all democracies, really, <laughs> <laughs> supposedly. The model of democracy that everyone should be following is, yeah. is what the American model should be saying. I think it's interesting. I don't know if he's rigging the election, because that's what a few... There's the kind of... Well, in Brexit, we have the term Ramonas. I don't know what the term in the US is, I guess. <laughs> Just annoyed people who voted for Hillary. <laughs> I don't know if there's a good name, the, the Clintoners. I don't know. It doesn't work. If, it hasn't got the same kind of ring yeah. to it. Um, but they definitely spoke about rigging, and I think the recount in Wisconsin actually showed that they'd actually under-judged how many votes Trump had. So I think Trump won in Wisconsin by about 30,000, that's what they worked out. When they recounted it, it turned out they'd actually missed out 16,000 votes for Trump, which actually just worries me generally that they could miss out that many <laughs> votes when they, when they recount it, but that's, I guess, a different story. But I think it's more influence than rigging. I don't know if he's actually rigging any of I mean, do you know if he's Moldova or Bulgaria, if there's actually voter fraud going on? Well, I think with Bulgaria, I think that might be an instance where it wasn't rigged, but I, with a lot of fake news stories going along, okay, yeah. I think there may have been a lot of motivation um, for people to vote for the pro-Russian candidate mm-hmm. um, using these fake articles. And I think with Moldova, I don't know their electoral system very well, and 
and how free and fair they are. I know um, very little about Moldovan politics. Oh, how, how, how do you not know? That's the that's the corner piece yeah. of uh, well, European politics. The issue with Moldova is that they do have an in, a massive area of their country which is uh, declares itself to be an independent. Is it Transnistria? Yes. Declares itself to be an in- independent state and is um, has Russian troops guarding that supposed independent state. Does Russia recognise it as a state? Yes, it does. Um, oh, okay, so it's got to it's got beyond because there are some Russian supported states that don't even get recognised by Russia, but it is recognised by Russia. Okay. Yeah, Transnistria is I think also South Ossetia, uh, which is in Georgia. Yeah, is also recognised. After the two thousand and eight war. Yes, um, and then you also got Luhansk and what's the other one? Donetsk. Yeah, yeah Donetsk and Luhansk in eastern Ukraine. Yeah, those two states. You'd think they'd merge the two really to create one yeah. bigger, <laughs> bigger um, yeah. well country. Yeah. Um, but. I don't know, but I think it is showing a sign that Russia can influence a lot of democratic elections, and with 2017 coming up, there's a big worry that... There's, quite, there's the Dutch, German, French uh, elections that, off the, off the top of my head, those are the ones I can think of. Yeah, so there could be, theoretically, a, a UK election. I doubt that, but... We'll go into that <laughs> another time. But there, let's just say, there could be, you know. I mean, there's a lot of... There's a, there's a lot of Europe is at stake, and I think... Russia, well, Russia's foreign policy stance is that they should, well, they're aiming to break up the EU in any way possible. Yeah. And if they do influence these elections, so I don't know, back Marine Le Pen in, in the French elections, and you, you might also have Italy, Italy coming up as well. Yeah, Italy's um, another one where there could be an election, and there could be some quite different parties winning that election who have, uh, well, more anti-EU views. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, if you look at the polls currently, there's only one pro-European party in the top four. And that was Renzi's party that lost the referendum recently. So it, there's a lot of scope for Putin to actually yeah. su- support Italy having well, having a pro-Italian leader for Russia. Yeah. And then with Germany, um, quite interestingly, when I did a bit, well, I read an article where essentially the CDU, the Christian Democrat Party, found that Russia had also intervened in their databases and hacked into their system, and they're they're afraid that something similar might occur for the German elections. I mean, I wouldn't be particularly surprised. I mean, as far as Russian influence in European politics goes, I think it's good that we've kind of said that Russia's influencing things, but I think maybe we should cover why. So I think one can be quite certain in America, in the USA at least, Putin didn't want Hillary Clinton. Whether he wanted Trump is probably a different question, but Hillary Clinton was definitely not the candidate (laughs) that... Putin wanted for the White House for the next four years. The way Trump's talking, it looks like Trump might have actually been better than anyone else in the primaries <laughs> as far as uh, friendly to Russia goes. You know, Trump kind of, despite his kind of art of the deal bravado and I'm going to make America great again, he seems to kind of appease Russia, which is strange to me. Because I, I would, if the way Trump talks I'd be, and the way he talks about China, yeah, it seems more likely that he should kind of go to Russia and say, you know, fine, Crimea, but give me something else. You know, that's the kind of, whereas he seems to just want to give it to them. Um, but maybe we should talk about, just to kind of covers that, but maybe we should talk about why exactly Putin dislikes the EU. Um, why does he want these anti-EU parties? Because I think um, Marie Le Pen's National Front, sorry, Front National. Um, <laughs> Get the French accent. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll be practising that. And I, well, I'm saying Marie Le Pen, not, you know, Marie Le Pen or whatever, you know. Someone of our English stock should be saying, <laughs> um, but they do. The, the Front National have taken money, I think, indirectly from Russian banks that 
is essentially coming from Putin. Yeah, I mean, um, if you think about it from the perspective of Putin, he yeah. was he was in the KGB whilst the Soviet Union was, be, well, being removed essentially. I think he was in he because he was in East Germany oh, right. as a KGB operative, and I believe there's a, he was in Berlin as crowds were outside and they were burning documents, and they thought they were going to be killed. So he does, you know, come from a... He does fear democratic forces, <laughs> is what I'd say. And for him, probably rightly so. Um, I'm surprised they haven't made that into a film, really, the, the day that Putin um, Putin survived the democracy. I would like to see a Putin biopic. I'm, I mean, the Russians <laughs> should do that. Yeah, Putin's fight against democracy. <laughs> that would be interesting, but... From his perspective, he's he's lived well most of his life. He lived in a Soviet Union where yeah. they owned East Germany, Czech Republic, um, yeah. going all the way down to Bulgaria. And through the last decade, two decades, he's seen that country no longer exist. Yeah. In the um, absence of Russian authority, they've become under the sphere of the EU, who's mm. increasingly going eastwards in its expansion. And I think twenty, I think twenty fourteen, when the Ukraine. Yeah, 2014. Yeah. That was when he thought that was enough is enough, in his view. Because he views Ukraine as being solely part of Russia. In the same way in 2008, where Georgia was trying to join NATO, he thought, no. I think he has to almost, because of the scope of his powers economically and militarily, he kind of can't really do much about Romania or Czech Republic or these countries being part of the European sphere, at least for now. Yes. But the ones that used to actually be in the Soviet Union... That, for me, seems to be his red line, except for the Baltic states, because he didn't really have much power when they joined NATO. Yes. I think, yeah, if he was in power when Estonia, uh, Latvia and Lithuania joined the EU, he would have probably said no again. I don't know if he was... I think he was in power, but in the early stages, if I remember. Okay. And maybe also the Russian economy was a lot weaker mm. in those days as well. That That's his red line, essentially, is Ukraine. Yeah. And at the moment, he's now... The Ukraine conflict's occurred, and I, it's, it's a ceasefire now, right now. Yeah, I, it's technically a ceasefire, but there is... I think if you're there, what they do is they... I saw a BBC reporter, but they seem to be quite a lot of small arms fire at night. And I think the main thing is that the artillery and heavy weapons have been pulled back. People still dying there. It's just more a case of no major offensives okay. going on. So nothing's going to change. Yeah, but I think he's... So yeah, so that's happened. And then he Syria's going on, which always used to be part of the Soviet sphere of influence. Yeah, and he had to stop that essentially because then he he would have lost his mili- his only Middle Eastern ally, so to speak. Yeah, I think it's interesting in Syria why he intervened because there's always talk of you know his um, the naval base there and stuff. But from what I understand, it was kind of not really important. It's about the same as the British naval base in Singapore, which we've all heard of and know greatly about. <laughs> <laughs> was, you know, it's like twenty guys who kind of sit in this relatively small port, which doesn't really do much for their military. But I think you're right, it's that it's, that it's an ally as well. And I think I've seen in, in Russian propaganda that they kind of talk about the threat of Islamic terrorists in Syria coming back to Russia. Oh, right. So I think he's tied it to domestic issues, like um, obviously the Chechen war and stuff like that, which is uh, almost one might see as like the kind of, I know that was under Yeltsin, but it's also been done more under Putin as the Soviet Union broke up. It could have broke up more. Yes. Um, I think it's interesting to note that, you know, it's this, it's this very fast class of an empire. Really, uh, you don't see it. And apart from the European colonial empires, and even then they collapsed over a much longer period of time. Yeah, if you compare it to, like, the British Empire, I mm. think the first colony to leave was... It's India, probably? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, Palestine t- technically, but it's late. Well, 40s. that end, that ended well, didn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but it's, we're talking late the late forties. Yes, and then um, what was what was the last colony to leave? I'd say Hong Kong in yeah nineteen ninety nineteen ninety seven ninety seven. All right, the, um, and. Certain bodies of the UN would argue that there are still colonies part of the UK to this day. But if you look at the kind of most places, it's from the late 40s to the early 80s, because there were some African countries that only left incredibly late in the early 80s, actually. But most European empires took that kind of 30, 40 year period. But Russia was two, three years, really. Yeah, it's it's actually much better than one of the most fastest, well, it must be the biggest empire to actually just descend. Because yeah. it's the entire empire built by Imperial Russia, and then, which is the kind of what made up the actual state of the Soviet Union. And then you've got to remember that the satellite states, the satellite states are in, yes, when you look at a map from 1945, they're well, sorry, 1950, they're drawn as their own independent states, but those states were as independent as, you know, Transylvania was to the Ottomans. You know, they're really... <laughs> <laughs> they may be technically have their own leaders who kind of do their own thing, but the Soviet ambassador there was as much a leader. Yeah, it's calling the shots, really. Yeah. I mean, the Soviet ambassadors in these states actually were transferred, were, were were promoted from roles as junior administrators in small Russian provinces. That's how they got the job. Oh. So it's actually quite interesting that the people who ran, you know, Chechnya or whatever would then become the ambassador to Romania. <laughs> so you can see... What a where, promotion, right? <laughs> exactly. So you can see where they kind of... What their understanding of that role was. So I think it, it is a crazy... If you look, you know, from, from Berlin to now Russia. Yes, and you've got to think, what, this, what does this mentality do to the next generation that's coming in? Because Putin... I don't know how old he is, but this next generation that's going to come up with of political leaders, they might not remember the Soviet Union as much as, as Putin does, and they might be less aggressive, which is, I hope that us in the West can have. But um, Putin and his cadre will probably be in power for a very long time. That's and true. I think, unless you have some massive upset, some big rebellion or something, but I still think they'd probably crush that force. And so I think for the foreseeable future, you know, medium term, a few decades, um, you're looking at this kind of attempt to rebuild as much as possible of this Russian empire. Yeah. Um, I mean, right now it's based on very much ethnic grounds. It's very much that kind of Russia, let's make a Russia of, of Russians. Yes. And that's why you've got, you know, Crimea. Um, but the issue with that is, of course, there are other states that have plenty of Russians in them. Kazakhstan, I know it's currently an ally of Russia, but that could change. Yeah. Kazakhstan has quite a lot of Russians and a decent bit of territory that Putin would love to draw some lines around <laughs> to make part of his Russia. And, of course, um, the Baltic states. Yes, I, I think Estonia has got a very large Russian population. I think and Estonia is the one which is on the on the north. Yes, and that's got Narva, the city, is right on the Russian border, and is essentially, I think, by about eighty or ninety percent, a Russian city ethnically. Yes. So that there is a certain fear there that Putin's next step will be to send some of his little green men, as they were called when they went into Crimea, that these these troops, Russian troops, will turn up in Narva, take it over. And that's a NATO member state. And will NATO respond to that? That's the, I think that's the big question for the next four years. Yeah, I mean, with, with Trump, uh, Trump's election, he's openly stated um, that he doesn't believe in a NATO, yeah. as he believes America shoulders most of the burden of it all. And I agree to a certain degree that, yes, America pull, pulls a lot of the weight of NATO. Yeah, but NATO should, should do more as, as a kind of 
paying their way, the rest of the members. Yeah, because so I think there's a 2% of GDP target for military spending. Five countries hit Five. it. It's like America, the UK, I think some of the Baltic states understandably hit it as well. <laughs> I think um, I think Greece is one of the surprising ones on that really? list. Okay. That there's a few, it's but out of the, what is it, 30 yeah. countries in NATO, something like that, very few of them. And it's things countries like France sometimes don't meet it. You know, it's countries that you'd expect to meet it. Yeah, but then I think with with Britain, the way that they do the accounts for two percent of GDP, they include Trident in that. Which, yes, which under the um, Tony Blair and before that major, they used not to yeah. include that, which I think is important. So the way that kind of Cameron's made, made quite a lot out of it um, as Prime Minister of hitting that two percent. He quite liked his targets: two percent GDP on the military, not point seven percent on aid. He was very keen on those kind of things, but when it came down to it, he often was fudging the numbers. Yeah. Because, yeah, like I said, under the New Labour and before that, under previous Conservative governments, they did not include Trident as part of that. Yeah. And that's, you know, two billion a year. It's quite a lot to bump up your numbers. You know, but I think we, we, we should definitely go into this in a future episode about our opinions on Cameron and his short term, well, in my, in my opinion, his short term view on, on life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think, yeah, obviously there'll be time to go back to that, but. But today we're sticking to the, the issues of the day. Yes. Such as Narva in Lithuania. <laughs> yeah. no, sorry, such as Narva in Estonia, which is deep in our hearts and close to us all. We care deeply about Narva. Yes. Um, I'm joking now, but you know, if, if I put this podcast up, you know, it takes me ages to put it up. Narva might have already been invaded and will seem like some kind of prophet. <laughs> the new Nostradamus, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly, you know, the future talking point. Well, going on to a future talking point. We're going to cover the topic of Congo. Ah, yes, the the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Yes, this might seem like a left world choice for you, um, but depending on when this leaves, this could be a new story in the future. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about it because when we were, like I said, recording mid December, so actually today, the nineteenth of December, um, in the DRC, it's the day when Joseph Kabila, who is the current, I believe, he's president. Yes, president is president. His title. It's president. I get sometimes there's prime ministers. It gets confusing. So he's the president of the, the DRC, and he's meant to legally stand down today. He's finished his two terms, and he's got to go. But he said he's sticking around till I believe it's April next year. Well, he's a He actually hasn't made it very clear when he wants oh, to okay. leave. Maybe but his allies won an election in 2018. Oh, no, sorry. I believe it was April 2018. That's it. Oh, oh right. In oh. April 2018, he says that's how long it's going to take to organise an election. So there's fears that there could be violence. And, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the DRC, I, I, I haven't actually heard it. I've been there and I, I've only met one or two people from the country itself. I don't know much about it. But, you know, it's a very large country, quite a large population. I think we're talking something similar to the population of Bangladesh, I believe. Well, no, it's uh, it's. Oh, I've got, got the facts. Uh, Seventy-seven million is the population. Oh, okay, so more like Germany then, or something. Well, it's, yeah, it's that's bigger probably, than UK. Bigger I'd say. than you know, we're talking about a decent population, more than the UK. Uh, as far as its size, it's a pretty large country, one of the largest countries in Africa these days, I believe. Yeah, it's it's a very large uh, country, and yeah. I think the way it's designed. And the way it was left by the Belgians means that it's really hard to govern. Yeah. Even I if think. you are a strong leader or a uh, or if it's a democratic leader. Yeah, exactly. But it is a shame because it has quite a lot of natural resources, which for some countries, you know, if you look at Australia or um, the UK, for example, uh, have been a blessing. But for countries, especially countries in the global south, as they're, as they're known in kind of you know academic politics, yes, um, it's a resource curse really. Because I think the main thing with uh, 
its DRC has lots of uranium. Actually, most of the uranium used in the Manhattan Project come, came from the Congo. I did not know that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, they've got a lot of uranium, a lot of copper, I believe. Um, there's oil, for example. If you, um, any of you have Netflix, there's a great documentary called Virunga, which is about the Virunga National Park. And uh, I won't spoil too much, but essentially what happens, I mean, it's not spoilers, it's the documentary, but, you know, <laughs> it's got a good story in it. But essentially, there's this British oil company that try and go into this national park. And the government allows them to, and you essentially have the kind of national park um, workers trying to defend against this oil company who've got mercenaries and are trying to destroy this national park and take all the oil. And at the same time, there's a rebel fighting going on. I believe it was filmed in 2014. So it's a real, it's a real life story then. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real life story. Um, it's a, a, it's an interesting documentary because I believe the documentary maker went along to kind of do a documentary about the chimpanzees there and oh, there used to be a civil war here. And then whilst the documentary maker was there, the oil company came in, the civil war heated up again, and it, you know, there's some battles that go on and stuff. So it's, okay. really, it's a really interesting... So you really stumbled onto something there. Yeah, it was very much a kind of accidental take. But as, as I was saying, there are various resources, and then important resources, coltan um, as well. That's just the kind of final one I mentioned, purely because it's interesting, because, yeah, we know oil, everyone drives cars and flies and planes everywhere. Um, but coltan is actually very important in, in mobile phone technology and um, I mean I don't know too much about um, <laughs> you know making mobile phones but I believe it's something to do with the very small transistors means that you need this particular material um, in the same way that you need gold for certain uh, mobile technology things Yeah. so that it's it's got resources that are really needed by a lot of people well yes I think there's a, a lot of neighbouring countries surrounding the DRC and I'm not going to name them but they definitely have vested interest in supporting certain militias that would get control of certain... I believe you're talking militias. about Rwanda. Oh, uh, well, I was not going to name. But... Okay, okay. No. I, I, I didn't want anyone from the Rwandan government suing our podcast. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, we're not accusing Rwanda of anything, but there are, there are certain historical facts that Rwanda has been involved in the uh, sad state of the, of the Congo. Yeah, I think there's a rebel group, the M23. Yes, M23. That um, um, that yeah. have tried to occupy eastern parts of the Congo. Yes, uh, the city of Goma and the area around that is really, which is still because uh, I think it's important to remember that in the late nineties, uh, the Congo had two wars, um, two civil wars that had were very similar in kind of the way they were to the Syrian civil war to the, today. You yeah. know, it's kind of so many foreign actors getting involved, lots of separate rebel groups fighting each other for really confusing foreign interests. Um, you had, you know, a few thousand Zimbabwean troops turned up to fight for one side, and it all kind of, it's all very confusing. And, and large parts of Eastern Congo were kind of owned by militias loyal to Rwandan Burundian troops. Yeah, and I think during that period, I think, was it 1997 to 2003, there was yeah. the civil war you're talking about? And five million people died in that civil war. Yeah, no, it's really something that's not talked about a lot. I mean, the lowest estimate I've ever seen was, I think, two and a half million, which even then... And that's being that's a low estimate, and even then that puts it on the same par with you know um, the Soviets in Afghanistan, and the Vietnam War, and the Korean War. So it's a kind of it's a very important, very deadly war that's happened, and it's still affecting the country sadly to this day because Joseph Kabila was the kind of eventual winner yeah. of that war, and he managed to kind of stay in power by passing this constitution that said he could only serve two terms. And now, sadly, once again, as always happens with the Congo, someone's not. Um, transferring power. Yes, I think this it would be the first democratic transition of power if 
it happened today, um, yeah. which is quite sad, really. Um, but just going through uh, Kabila, he became leader in two thousand one. So okay, being so, the winner, so, yeah. being literally the winner of that civil war, he his father was the president before the civil war. So yes, bit of a her, her, I think yeah, he got assassinated during the civil war, and that's what led to yeah, his father was killed, and I believe it was a plane was shot down that kind of started the civil war. Yeah. And then, and then he eventually won the civil war um, over that period, and then he put, set about creating uh, elections. In two thousand six, he won the first elections that ever occurred in in the Republic okay. of Congo. Though there was suspected rigging of elections, yeah. Uh, but then he won a twenty a twenty eleven election, a twenty eleven election, and that one was free and fair according to observers. Okay. And they're five year terms, and there's two terms as the limit. And he's clearly going to be going against it if he stays on any longer than today. And the opposition leader has openly called for the for Kabila to stand down. And Kabila has obviously just ignored it so far. Yeah, so it seems like he'll be sticking around for as long as possible. But the fear is that this is a country that quite quickly descends into civil war. Yes. I mean, the issue is uh, the kind of fractured nature of society. that There is no kind of sense of really being Congolese in that way. For example, it's that kind of obviously all of these African states, or at least most of them, were constructed by European empires yeah. and were drawing lines in the sand to fit their kind of certain trade interests and other commercial interests, and are therefore a patchwork of different languages, different ethnicities. But some states, for example, I mean, I've been to Tanzania, and there you've got a situation where after independence they've really gained the sense of being Tanzanian. Um, there definitely used to be strong t- tribal differences, but they've moved forward, and now they kind of, everyone speaks Swahili, and everyone says they're Tanzanian. Yeah, it's, it's trying to build a nation, national identity, really, because yeah. it's, it's a country that never really existed before. Yeah, I mean... Until the until the Belgians left and decided, yes, yeah, we're going to draw the lines in the sand and put us the Democratic Republic of Congo. And... Exactly. I mean, the name Congo comes from a kingdom that existed in what is today the kind of um, the Congo, the country of the Congo, and part of the DRC, but only on the western coast of Africa. So that kind of area is where that kind of Congo comes from. The, the kind of country carved out by is Leopold II of Belgium. Yes, Leopold II. Yeah, and it's good that we kind of look at the history behind some of this because you know we mentioned general European empires, but if we look at the Congo specifically, um, we gained independence in the sixties. Yes, say, in the sixties. Um, but before then, from the 1890s onwards, it was the private domain of the Belgian king. Yeah. Um, it wasn't even owned by the Belgian government. It was just... Yeah, not until much later. And, yeah, it's, not, yeah. it's only when they confiscated it off, off Leopold because Leopold was mismanaging it so badly. Yeah, I think mismanaging is an understatement. I think, you know, if you... I, I'd recommend the book um, King Leopold's Ghost by um, Adam Hobschild, I believe his name is. Which is an excellent look into kind of the brutality of this regime. I mean, it's the kind of thing you know. If anyone's read the novel *Heart of Darkness*, that and its adaptation ended up being the film *Apocalypse Now*. But it's that brutality by the um, Belgians that's explored there, and I think it is has left a definite scar on the country that they were ruled by such a horrible regime. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's just generally a problem that most African countries are facing at this moment in time. Mm. Is that they're living through a post-colonial mm-hmm. world where they have to deal with what happened during the colonial period? I mean, what we saw with the Rwanda that just happened in the neighbour um, Republic of Congo, 
was genocide of a proportion that's not been seen since World War Two. Yeah. And the reason for what for why that occurred was because Belgium preferred an ethnic group over another ethnic group. Yeah. And um, and then that built some sort of deep seated um, problems between the two ethnic groups, and that came to a head when one of the presidents died. And yeah, I mean, and the Rwandan genocide importantly influenced the that's what caused the kind of second part of the Congolese civil war, just after Rwandan genocide, because of people fleeing that it influenced this further bloodshed. So all these kind of factors are influencing each other, and it's really sad to see. Um, so many countries like this. I mean, there are, you know, there are hopeful cases. Some countries like, um, I think Senegal generally is quite a good democratic institutions. And like I said, Tanzania is on, is prosperous as far as it can be. Obviously, there are corruption issues. Yeah. Um, there is some hope for a lot of these places, but the, the DRC especially does look like quite a, a sad, a sad state. So we shall see how long Joseph Kabila will yeah. be in power. I sadly think it'll be quite a long time. I think it might be 2018 unless some sort of... I mean, it could lead to violence. Um, I think there was protests a few months ago where um, the opposition were calling for him to resign. And um, it led to 100 people being shot in the yeah. streets of the capital. Yeah. So it has the potential to probably be another civil war, which will be horrible for the country. As two-thirds of the 77 million people earn less than a dollar ninety per day. Yeah, so which yeah. is... Which so, is Sad for the, the the resources I talked about. Yeah, it's such a resource rich country that they're not getting the proceeds of that at all. Yeah, it's not distributed at all, and I think a lot of people are on the edge where all it takes is a little bit of tinder or a match to um to ignite the flame of civil war, yeah. and that can happen at any point really. And well, we gotta hope that it doesn't lead to that, but yeah. it could definitely be a new story for twenty seventeen that might be coming up. Yeah, I think I mean, you've got to remember that there's I think. The largest UN peacekeeping force is present in the Congo. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's 50,000 50, odd troops, something quite large. Um, I assume they're mainly Pakistani, Indian, and Bangladeshi troops, most mm -hmm. UN peacekeeping forces are. No, it's an EU rapid, there's also an EU oh, rapid response force there, there as well. There as well, okay. So it's, it's a mixture, but you know, it's, it shows that even with all this kind of effort uh, coming in from the international community, there's still not any kind of solution coming to so yes so finally let's begin with our final segment which is the truth behind the news is that what we're calling it aaron truth behind the news well i don't know if if, if, if a few <laughs> of you have a few better ideas and names for this well, go ahead you know write it down or send us a an email but now you just have to store up those great ideas that you have all those angry criticisms and just shout them at whatever device we're using to uh listen to our lovely voices yes Go ahead and do that. Um, oh, anyway, as for the segment, this was it truth behind the news? Yeah, the truth behind the news so far. We're basically just going to look at some news stories that we found and just kind of really question kind of what they're saying. So we got this one in the Daily Express. Of, it is of the, the 19th of December. Yeah, yeah. I've got a fresh newspaper today. Oh, for, oh from, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so it's talking, the headline is Miliband's 530k wage part funded by taxpayer. And that's it. It's in bold as well, you know. So you know it's very important. This, yeah. And then this is on uh, the this, second page. This is on page two. So you know, when you just, you're past the headlines about the travel disruption and horrible weather, and you're straight on to realizing that David Miliband has got a nice little photo from there. Interestingly, a photo without a banana. Oh no, um, that's my favorite photo. So it's him there. He's looking all happy, and the the story basically goes into a bit of detail about how he's getting. Yeah, five hundred thirty thousand pounds is his uh, 
how much he's paid by the International Rescue Committee, which he's president of. They also found out somehow that he pays £9,000 a month for his house in, or his flat in New York, I believe. Yeah, that's some dodgy journalism on how they can figure that out. No, no, that might be on Zoopla or something, I feel. <laughs> yeah, but it's a, rep- a, re- a repeatable source yeah. to be using as so basically, Yeah, and the uh, basic point of the article is that, that the International Rescue Committee gets about £3.6 million a year from DFID, and therefore the, the, government. the government is paying for uh, David Miliband's very large salary. I mean, what do you think about this, Aaron? In the end of the day, I think... Miliband was probably hired by what was it, the International Rescue Committee? In- International Rescue Committee. Yeah, the International Rescue Committee to be a, a well, to, to, he's a guy of immense experience, the foreign, former foreign secretary. Yes, and so I think maybe it's a big wage. I, I'll give you that, but he's a big name in international politics, and for having a person of that quality for the committee, I've never really heard of before. Yeah, gives gives them some sort of credibility and will give them contacts. So maybe I think it probably is a fairish sort of wage for his talents. I mean, yeah, I mean, to say, I mean, the article does have quite a provocative headline, but right at the end, they, they have a spokesperson from Save the Children, who also seems to get a lot of money from the government, who says, um, there's a direct relationship between having the best staff and the most impact in the large, complex operations we manage. Yeah, it's, it just leads on to the debate of whether charity should spend a lot of money on having great staff, or whether they should be spending all their money on somehow donating it yeah. without essentially good quality staff to back it up. there's also a point to be made about, you know, he's a former foreign secretary, so he has a certain um, gravitas and weight around the world, and I'm sure it must be quite useful for fundraising purposes. Because, um, you know, most of these uh, charities are getting a lot of their funding. First, you know, first it's from governments. And that requires, you know, former politicians are great for fundraising from governments. And then also for wealthy individuals. I'm sure if, you know, you go along to some kind of fundraising dinner and you're a billionaire, and it's David Miliband telling you about his charity, you're far more inclined to write a check out than yeah, you are if it's then, some person you never heard of. Yeah, if it was John Smith, uh, yeah. who yeah. happens to be the president of some committee you never yeah. heard of, you're not going to be willing to dole yeah. out uh, the fundraising. But I think, it, I think what the Express... Ha- headline here is going for is is whether the, there's some sort of conflict of interest here between Diffid and, and them giving the money over to yeah. Miliband but I don't see how that can link, it's very tenuous if that is the case no. because it's a conservative led government here in the UK and David Miliband is heavily linked to the Labour Party having been yeah. an MP for them so I don't see where the correlation is and I know we, how much was it again that they gave over to the committee? Uh, the committee gets uh, 3.6 million. 3.6 million. And that doesn't necessarily go straight all into the pockets of, of, of David Miliband. It yeah. obviously gets put into a pool and they decide how much goes off into funding projects, how much gets funded to... And I've got to remember that a certain percentage, you know, think of it as like a pound at a time and how much of each pound the taxpayer is paying is going to the actual projects, the staff, the admin. You know, there's a lot of things that go on. So the International Rescue Committee has got good work on the ground so they're helping people. But then to do that work, they need, they need the bureaucracy to support it. And then also people like David Miliband to be the kind of face of the organisation or to do fundraising. So all these things are important. And you can't just have a charity that purely does charity work. It's kind of impossible to yeah. not do that without the kind of stuff that people always say is not needed. Um, but I think this is kind of really part of, especially the Express, but you could this with other parts of the British press, who are kind of against the international aid budget. Yeah, because David Cameron 
as Prime Minister. I don't know what he actually did. He said it was 0.7% would be the APK. Well, I think it, it was when he was in coalition with the Liberal Democrats, it was in okay. the Lib Dem manifesto, I oh, think. Oh, I see. So that was one of his... Uh, Either, policies, either he wanted to do it or maybe he was part of a kind of negotiation, it's hard yeah. to say. So that was part of his coalition and he kept it going when he won the 2015 general election that the UK would spend 0.7% of its GDP on um, aid. Yes, foreign aid. Um, but it's under threat currently under Theresa May's government with the actual um, well, the department head. Pretty Patel. Yeah, pretty Patel has previously said she wants to abolish the department. Yes. And she's quite an interesting character. I mean, she's in favour of the... Well, she was in favour of the death penalty. I'd say any listeners, please go on YouTube. Type in Pretty Patel, question time, Ian Hislop. And it's just excellent. It's her arguing with Ian Hislop of Private Eye about the death penalty. And she doesn't really make a very good case, <laughs> is what I'd say. Um, but uh, it, it's just it's just these sort of inflammatory headlines where... Essentially, if you just skim reading it, because most people do skim read newspapers, and you see Miliband 508k wage yeah. part funded by taxpayer, you think, oh my god, is this Ed or David Miliband? Is um, 508k yeah. sounds like a lot as well. And um, and then I guess the part funded bit is kind of an illusion that maybe it's not all funded by the taxpayer, but it's it does it scream at you as of something that's unfair and unjust. I'm a bit angry about mm. it. And, and since the referendum, you definitely feel that there's a lot more anger in politics. And I don't know, it's these sort of headlines where I think this is why the segment's here, the truth behind the news. And we're just trying to um, trying to look at the headlines and, and read through it and uh, see what the true story is behind it. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely issues like that that need to be covered. But I think we've gone to that. We've defended David Miliband's incredibly large salary for no particular reason. I don't, I don't know the man. <laughs> um, but some, yeah. We're not sponsored by him, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, we haven't actually got any sponsors. So if you'd like to sponsor us, by all means, please uh, get in contact. <laughs> you know, if you or if you're just a wealthy individual, we can just say your name at the start of the episode, at the end of the episode. Yeah, in, in the middle of the episode, anywhere really, just randomly, just just in between a sentence, John would just come up as as it would naturally would, and that's just the way that we deal with. Well, if you want us to replace words such as like the with your name, we're also willing to. <laughs> I guess in many ways this episode was sponsored by the Daily Express. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some, some would say. So that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. This has been our first Very Casual Politics podcast. And we thank you very much for tuning in as much as you have. So uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you want to message us uh, about any feedback or any ideas on what we could do for the podcast. Or any questions that you may have as well. We're happy to answer any. Yes. At verycasualpolitics at gmail.com, all lowercase. That's verycasualpolitics at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. I've been Matt. And I've been Aaron. Thank you and goodbye. Bye.